Okay, we're continuing on in the book of James, and last week I talked a little bit about who James was, and let me pick up on that. So let me read James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And so what we covered is that James, being, being the half-brother of the Lord, or, or cousin, was an unbeliever during the lifetime of Jesus, and that's from John uh, 7, verse 5. He didn't, it says his brothers didn't even believe on him. But we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, that Jesus appeared to James. And we assume then it was at that point that he became a believer. And he ended up becoming the pastor of the church, or the overseer of the church of Jerusalem. Um, he is considered one of the apostles. There were two categories of apostles. The first category, we know from Acts chapter 1, verse 21, it says that they had to have been with Jesus from the time of his baptism by John to his ascension, to have spent the entire ministry life of Jesus with him. <clears throat> and, and it says, and the reason we know from John 1.21, it says that they, could, they chose two men to select from for replacing Judas when, because Judas was gone they said they had to have a twelfth apostle here and so in that there were only two men that had that fulfillment two, so the eleven had it there were only two other men and Matthias was given that position it was decided by lot which to us seems a strange way to choose a person but that is the Old Testament scripture way to choose by lot and so they did exactly as the Old Testament had instructed them to do. But once the Holy Spirit came, you see no more in the church selection by lot, drawing of straws, because it went to discernment based on prayer, discernment based on the Holy Spirit. So things changed that way. There was a second category of apostles. And that's seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. They had to have seen the Lord. That could have been on earth, or in his resurrection. They had to have been eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. James fulfills that second category, where he was an eyewitness of his resurrection. He was an eyewitness, I'm sorry, of, of his resurrection. And so, Paul was an eyewitness of his resurrection. That was the second category that was apostleship. And today, we use this term apostleship. We, not everybody does. Some people use it rather loosely. They say, so-and-so, he's an apostle. <clears throat> the scriptures reserved that for these two categories. Either they had seen the Lord, from the, they had walked with the Lord from the time of his baptism to his ascension, or they had seen him in his resurrection physically. Paul saw him, saw him in his resurrected state, <clears throat> but not during the time that he was walking on earth. Paul had this vision of him where Jesus appeared to him. <clears throat> I'm not sure that you want to flippantly take on apostleship because based on the scriptures every apostle every apostle was killed except for John that we know of so they were all martyred it was a very very difficult life so if you're signing up for something where you, you, you kind of like some leadership just remember what the outcome of this is apostleship is not an easy thing but, but uh, uh, <clears throat> he was one of those apostles 
We also know that he was pastor of the Church of Jerusalem because in Acts chapter 15, he takes the primary role. After Peter speaks, after Paul speaks, James then sums the whole thing, sums up the whole thing and writes the letter and deals with the issue of the problems that they were having and allowing the, the Gentiles not to have to fulfill the law of Moses in order to walk as Christians. They didn't have to fulfill the law. They were freed from the law. And then again in Acts 21, Paul said that when he came back to report to Jerusalem, he was there, he met with James and the other elders. James was given the preeminent position. James and the other elders. James was the leader of the church of Jerusalem. We also know from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, that James was married, as were the other apostles. James, it says, as the other apostles, as they were married, and James, the brother of the Lord, and Cephas. Well, why wasn't Cephas, or Peter, included with the other apostles? Because he was preeminent among them, as was James in his position as being, being, uh, um, being pastor. And that's why Paul said, hey, I'm free to marry, but I've chosen not to. But all the other apostles, the other apostles, they were married. James, it says, was married. So we know that James was married. Let me read you a portion of what's written. Remember I told you last week that this book is so Jewish, so Jewish that it is believed that it was written prior to the events in Acts chapter 9 where, where the, the uh, uh, Gentiles started coming in. And some even believe before the Samaritans even came into the church. And that's why James says in chapter 1, I'm writing to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad. Greetings. Because in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says a persecution arose after the stoning of Stephen. And it says that the believers, the believing Jews, were the ones who believed in Christ. Remember, they weren't even referred to as Christians in those days. They were, they were called the believers. Sometimes referred to as the sect of the Nazarene, meaning Jesus from Nazareth. They, they were... They were um, uh, they scattered. It says they all scattered in Acts 8.1, except the apostles remained in Jerusalem. Now, why the apostles didn't scatter, I'm not sure. Apparently, their, life, their lives were not as threatened. Um, sometimes when you mess with the apostles, you, you know, bad things would happen to you. Other times, you know, they, they were persecuted along with everyone else. But, every, but the believers scattered. James is writing to them. And he's writing to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. So the tribal identities were known. There were not 10 lost tribes. The 12 tribes, people knew their tribal identity. In the book of Luke, it says that, that, that Anna was of the tribe of Asher. It named her by tribe. And she was not of, of, of Judah. She was not of Benjamin. So those 10 tribes were still known. That is a myth to say there were ten lost tribes. They were not lost at this time. People still had their tribal identity, the ones that were around. Let me read this so that you get the sense of how Jewish this really is. This is something that John MacArthur wrote. He says, The epistle, the epistle's distinctively Jewish character is in keeping with the picture of James given in Acts 15 and 21. The book of James contains four direct quotes of the Old Testament and more than 40 Old Testament allusions. In addition, James expresses himself in distinctly Old Testament terms, beginning in the first verse with the reference to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad. James describes the gospel as the law of liberty in 2.12. 
He describes the reader's meeting place using the Greek word transliterated synagogue. In 4.4, he uses the Old Testament figure of adultery to describe spiritual defection. Contemporary Jewish abuses regarding oath-taking are condemned in, in, in 5.12. The prominent Old Testament figure, Elijah, appears as an example of the power of the righteous prayer in 5.17 and 18. Such important Old Testament names as Abraham in 2.21, Rahab in 2.25, Job in 5.11 also appear in the epistle. James is also the only New Testament writer to employ the distinctly Old Testament title for God, Lord of Sabbath, or hosts. Paul only refers to this title in quotation from Isaiah when he's writing in Romans 9.29. So you see that it would have made no sense for Paul to quote all these Old Testament, for James to quote all these Old Testament figures if he was writing to Gentiles. When Paul wrote to Gentiles, he never used Old Testament figures as a point of reference because they didn't know it. You use, old, you use references, human references, when it's someone who's valid in that person's culture. You see what I mean? This book was so distinctly Jewish. So, this author, James, James is, is, is uh, the way, it really comes from the root Jacob. Jacob is, is more accurate. Um, his death, James's death, is not recorded in the scriptures, but it is recorded by several historians of that day, one of them being Josephus, who himself was a Jewish historian of that day, and many things outside the Bible and things that were going on around biblical times, we, we learn from Josephus's writings. He was a historian, again, claimed to be, have been a Pharisee. And writing in that time, it's, here's, here's what he writes concerning the death of James. He says, The book of Acts does not record James' death, but other ancient sources do. One source was Josephus, the first century Jewish historian. Josephus recorded James' time of death between the reigns of two Roman pr- procurators in Judah. In the year 61 A.D., Festus, the Festus from the book of Acts, died in office. A few months later, in 62 AD, a new procurator, Albinus, was dispatched. Because he did not arrive until 62 AD, a number of months transpired between the death of one procurator and the arrival of a second. The high priest at the time was Ananus, the son of Annas, the same Annas found in the Gospels, the same Annas involved in in, in the trial of Jesus. The son of Annas, who was Ananus, accused James of violating the law and ordered him to be stoned. At this point, Josephus recorded the stoning of James and then inserted an interesting comment. Josephus assigned the death of James as one reason why God allowed the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. It is amazing that Josephus would make this connection because he himself was not a believer, but, as a fa- but described himself as a Pharisee. However, James's piety was well known, and Josephus felt that this wrongful death of James was one of the several reasons why Jerusalem was destroyed. There were two other historians that noted the death of James in that time, and they give us more insight. The two others are Hegesippus and Eusebius, and they add more detail. And they say that Ananus gave James an option. And he said that he could stand on the wall of Jerusalem and publicly renounce his faith or be stoned to death. 
And James agreed to stand on the wall of Jerusalem. When he got up on the wall of Jerusalem, he began to preach the gospel, though. Ananus became so angry, he pushed him off the wall, and he fell to the ground, and then those who were standing below the wall finished him off with stones. That's the recording, the historical recording of the death of James. James had another name, and he was referred to in extra-biblical writings as camel knees. Apparently, when camels lie down and get up, they go via their knees. They first bend their legs, put their knees on the ground, and go down. Then they put their knees back on the ground in order to stand up. And apparently their knees become very bulky and, 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 and bruised. And that's how James was described his, his, uh, because he was praying so much. In fact, Hegesippus writes this, this historian of this day writes this concerning James. He drank neither wine nor fermented liquors, and he abstained from animal food. A razor never came upon his head, he never anointed with oil, and never used a public bath. He was in the habit of entering the temple alone, and was often found upon his bended knees and interceding for the forgiveness of the people, so that his knees became so hard as camels' knees were, in consequence of his, his habitual supplication and kneeling before God. So, this is the James who wrote this book. Remember, this is good to keep in mind. Because as we read this, it's very different than the teachings of Paul. It sounds very Jewish. It sounds like reading the book of Proverbs. You know, you do this, you'll be blessed. You don't do this, this is going to happen to you. It's, it's very typical of Jewish teachings. Not only this, this man was himself extremely pious, deep in prayer. He lived like a Nazarite. He wouldn't drink alcohol. In fact, he wouldn't eat, even eat meat. He wouldn't use a public bath because of how discreet he was. And he was often found in prayer. This is good to know, isn't it? It's good to know something about, hey, who is this guy telling me this? Well, look at the degree of his godliness. In fact, he was referred to by the Jews as James the Just, because he was so pious. He was known for his piety. This is the James that we're dealing with here. So this is good to keep in mind that, that uh, uh, James has this sort of background, this, this sort of piety in his, in his upbringing. Okay. Um, and so you could see why this, of all guys, should be chosen to be, to be um, the, the, uh, the pastor in Jerusalem. When you have Peter and all the other apostles, this guy was chosen to be pastor. And you see nothing in the book of James in reference to Gentiles whereas you see it all throughout the rest of the New Testament. So nothing here is occurring after... Everything here is occurring before Acts chapter 9, because in Acts chapter 9, the Gentiles started coming in to the church. No reference. This is why he says, I'm only writing to, to the twelve tribes. There were no Gentiles in the church at this time. So this then, again, makes sense. The mystery... The mystery of the Gentiles coming in, this is actually talked about in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5, it talks about the Gentiles coming in, how this had been a mystery. Gen, uh, um, uh, let, let's see, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4. I'll start reading from there. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So Paul's talking about a mystery, Christ, 
which in other generations was not known to the sons of men, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So what is this mystery? To be specific, he says in verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So you see, this mystery started to become revealed in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10. This was a mystery to them. God had worked occasionally in the lives of a Gentile in the Old Testament. But that there would be masses coming in they never even realized this. The, the early, in this early ministry, up to before Acts chapter 9, they never even realized this. It was so Jewish. So when people say to me, you know, oh, how could you, as a Jew, you know, come to know Christ and be a Christian? I'm like, how can you as a Gentile be a Christian? The gospel is so utterly Jewish. It really is. And it wasn't until many years later, years later, that the Gentiles started coming in. And then you go, whoa, this was the mystery. This was the glory that God planned. But you see, it was so Jewish. So the Jews should accept the gospel is actually a very natural progression, progression for them. It was as all, the, as all the apostles were. All of them were Jews. And so you see this sort of thing going on here. Um, and, and, and this, this, this sort of, of, of happenings. Now, let's look into verse 2 of James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now think, this is why I gave you this background concerning James. Who is this guy to say, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials? And to who is he speaking? Remember who he's speaking. In Acts chapter 8, I mean, look at what these people had been through. This is no, you know, you know to them the trial is not that their car broke down on the side of the road. Now that's trying. But he's not talking about that sort of thing. That just happens to everybody in life. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, so, so they had just stoned Stephen to death, the first martyr in the church. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the, the, the apostles. So all these people were, boom, scattered. These people had to run from their homes. They lost everything. All their land, everything they owned, they had to run. They couldn't pack it up. Maybe all they could carry under their arms. That's it. It is to these people, all of a sudden, James's church is gone. His congregation is gone. They are scattered abroad. He, as a pastor, is now writing to them. And you see what these people had gone through. Not only that, in the regions that they had fled to, they were persecuted by the Jews there. They were persecuted by wealthy Jews in those other regions. So here, where, who started this persecution against the believing Jews? Was it the Romans? No. It was the Jews that started the persecution against the believing Jews. 
They were the ones that stoned Stephen. They were the ones that ran them out of town. You see what I mean? So they ran now. And they've lost everything. And look what he says to them. Consider it all joy. My brethren, my brothers, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is the trials in life that will make us strong. It is the trials in life that will form depths of strength like nothing else. It is the trials of life which are hard and painful. But it is the trials that form us. I heard a story of a pastor about a hundred years ago who was single and he lived alone and he was a pastor, young pastor. And one day, a woman, and he was in his 30s, a woman came knocking on his door and in broad daylight in front of neighbors handed him a newborn baby and said, this is your child, you raise him. She went and turned around and stormed off. In this day, where sex is is so permitted and sexual promiscuity is, is so rampant, even then, in this day, it would kill the career of a pastor. Right? Imagine what it did a hundred years ago. There was no explanation that this man could give. This woman was gone. There was no DNA test and no blood test that could be taken. And this woman, this man, this pastor took this child and raised this child. Had to give up his pastorate of his small church and just do odd jobs and he raised this child. This was a tremendous trial in his life. When the child was about 12 years old, the woman returned. She had apparently become a believer. And she confessed to what she had done, that she had had this child out of wedlock, had no way of raising it, and just blamed it on this pastor. He had nothing to do with it, knowing that this pastor would raise up this child well. But it was already too late. The work in the pastor's heart had already been done. The trial and the experience and the pain that he had gone through had already formulated the development in his heart of having to bear up under persecution, of having to bear up under slander, of having to proceed. The work was already done. Yes, ultimately his life was redeemed, his reputation was redeemed, but that 12 years the work was already done. Paul talks about this same sort of thing in his life. Paul talks about a trial that he was going through in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about this. He had something. We don't know exactly what it is. But Paul was permitted to see Jesus in his glory. In Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I'm sorry, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. 
I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body I do not know or out of body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Now I'm reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. And I know how such a man, whether in body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will, I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. For if I do... For if I do wish to boast, I will not be. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish. For I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears of me. But because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Okay. So Paul, and we know from other portions that he wrote, that Paul said no man taught him these things. He was taught by Jesus Christ himself. The resurrected Jesus taught Paul. You say, well, where did Paul get all this understanding? Christ himself taught him. Here is an experience, he said, I was caught up to the third heaven, to paradise. And the Lord himself spoke to him. He says, because of this, I've received a thorn in the flesh to keep me from exalting myself. So Paul received some thorn. We don't exactly know. Some people say it was his eyes. He couldn't see well because Paul wrote in another portion, see, I write with, you can see it's my handwriting. I write with this, these big letters. We don't exactly know, but there was something that was afflicting him. Verse 8, Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Look at what he says. Something was afflicting me. I prayed three times, God, I implored God three times, remove it from me. And God did not. And finally, on the third time, He said, enough. I've given it to you. My power is perfected in your weakness. And Paul said, I glory in this now. The experiences, the hardships. One day, someone you really love is going to die. You're going to lose a person. God, why? Why? I prayed that they would live. Why? There is a trial that you are going through. Remember, if that person knows the Lord, they are in glory. This is going to make you stronger. One day you're going to lose something that's precious to you. One day you're going to be slandered or abused. Paul says... Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. If I have this weakness in me, I'm well content with it. With, not just with this weakness, but with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am insulted, it makes me a stronger man. That's what the scriptures say. You know, I'll sue him, I'll get my attorney, I'll, you know, I, I'm going to throw the last punch on this one. No. God says, let me make you a greater man because of this. 
when we are slandered, it is our opportunity to become greater. Paul says, I had this thorn in the flesh. God would not deliver me. And not only this, I had this thorn in the flesh to keep me from exalting myself. Sometimes things come upon us to keep us humble. I was talking with a guy this week, and he is so gifted, so gifted of a man. He is one of the best evangelists I know. And he was saddened that he was not a better teacher. And I said to him, if you were a better teacher, you would be very hard to be around. Because you would be so intimidating. You, can, you could do everything then. This guy can play instruments. He could lead a band. He, he's a tremendous evangelist. So many people come to know the Lord through him. And when he gets up to teach, he can teach. But he's not, a, it's not his primary gift. And he was bemoaning that fact. And I said, be glad. Because you'd be very difficult to be around. If you had yet another great gift. God allows things in our lives to keep us the way we are. Sometimes we don't like the way we look. But did you know the vast majority of people that have lived in generations before us never saw their faces? They didn't have mirrors. And if they did, they didn't have them for very long. I just heard uh, uh, Sidney Portier, the, the actor, he's 80-something years old now, was talking about he didn't see his face until he was like nine years old because they lived in a certain part of the Bermuda. Or, and he, he grew up as a child. The only time he could see his face was once in a while in the water when his mother was washing things, but it was never clear enough to really see his face. And then all of a sudden he went to a big city and he saw a mirror. and He saw his face for the first time. And here we scrutinize over this thing. Look at this thing I did. Oh, it looks so terrible. In other generations, it was never an issue. They never saw it. They never saw it. Now, the Bible does speak of, you know, we see in a mirror and we see... So there were mirrors available thousands of years ago, but only rich people had them. The general public never had them, and if they had them, it was never for very long, and the quality wasn't very good. Now you get those mirrors, and you know, it magnifies everything. And you're like, oh, look at that. That's so gross. Nobody else notices this, but we do. This is how safe. You see what I mean? God has made us perfectly to keep us seeking Him. If we want to be bigger or smaller or smarter, or faster. Just remember, God has made us, optimized us, to cause us to cry out to Him. I see men sometimes, and I think, boy, if I was as handsome as that guy, I think I'd be a mess. You know, because I would be so full of myself if I was as handsome as that guy. You see what I mean? So God has put us exactly where we need to be to optimize our chances to come to Him. Paul says, therefore, I am well content. What God has done, I am well content. Look in in, in Philippians 4.11, and we'll close with that. This classic portion that Paul writes, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content 
in whatever circumstance I am. This is Philippians 4.11. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do it all. He says, I know what it is. You know, money draws many people astray. Rich people, very hard. Paul says, I know how to deal with it. I can handle money. I know how to deal with it. Paul was very, very generous. Paul knew how to have nothing. There were other times he was in prison with nothing. He says, he thrived. He thrived in his relationship with God. He says, he's learned the secret. He learned the secret of being content in whatever circumstance. In trial, that's what he says, in distresses, in persecutions, in insults. I am content. I'm fine with that. This is where God wants to bring us. This is what James is saying. In this, let it have its perfect effect in you, meaning its fulfilling effect. Don't let this trial, don't let this persecution pass without it having its perfect effect in you. He's not saying to them, oh, cry out to God so that you can be delivered. He's saying, you're in it. You want to cry out to God that you can be delivered? Fine, but we're going to see next time that he says, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. But this is what he's calling us to. It is the trials in life. When I look back at the hardest times in my life, I was the closest to God. Times when things were coming against me and my family in the hardest of ways, we would pull together as a family the strongest in those times. And just the richness of the Scriptures took on new meanings in those times. Mundane things, which to others are mundane, but to me are not mundane. Times when my research grants were drying up and nothing was getting renewed. I had all these mouths to feed in the lab. I am crying out to God. It is amazing how, how much I will cry out to God when things like this start hitting upon me. When I have mouths to feed and people to take care of. And the things aren't there. And then how cocky I can become when I have a lot. And how short I can become with other people. But then when I'm in greatest need, how I can be very kind to people. And the whole attitude can change. This is what God calls us to. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word, for the truth of it. Father, let us learn from this man, James. James the just, James the pious. Let us learn from his life. Father, let us, even in the midst of trials that may come, to allow them to do their work in us. Father, I pray that You would so work in the lives of these young people, that as they look at themselves, they would understand that you have optimized it for their seeking you and coming to you. Father, I pray for your grace to abound upon them, that your grace would abound. Father, teach us your ways. In the name of Jesus, amen.